while people enter the uh, into the room. Buddy, it's fantastic to have you all with us this afternoon, and great to see so many people participating in this webinar. Over the last year or so, our lives have been turned upside down, and normal routines have been completely disrupted. Of course, for many people who've lost their jobs, their homes, and their loved ones, it's been much more devastating than simply having to work from home. Early last year, I can remember saying to various people that this would be a temporary hiccup and that things would quickly return to normal. I've always argued and written that cities are resilient, communities are pretty resilient and bounce back from shocks. I couldn't have been more wrong about the situation. So it's a particular pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Michael Stolper to you this afternoon. He's probably the world's leading economic and urban geographer. He's researched and written very widely on city and regional economic development, and has done recently done a lot of work on the rise of so-called superstar cities in the United States and Europe, linked with uh, technological change and the knowledge economy. Uh, Michael has won numerous awards, including the Founders Medal from the Royal Geographical Society in the UK and the Distinguished Scholarship Award from the Association of American Geographers. He holds three concurrent positions at the University of California in Los Angeles, where he is at the moment. And it's now eight o'clock in the morning, so he's just woken up at the LSE in London <clears throat> and at Sciences Po in Paris. His work is both highly original and offers an important synthesis of diverse ideas, especially at the interface between economics, geography, and sociology. The paper he's going to discuss uh, today presents a valuable framework, in my view, to begin to think about the impact of the pandemic on cities and regions. It's a time of huge uncertainty, of course. Nobody knows what the future holds. So the, having this framework, in my view, is very useful to get us to think through. It's not the final word on the subject. It draws heavily on uh, Michael's work in the uh, United States and Europe, and therefore says less about the global South. I'd love to have welcomed Michael to South Africa and showed him around our beautiful country, but I'm afraid we'll have to make do with an online webinar as the next best thing. And indeed, Michael will go on to explain that online is second best to face-to-face -face and in-person uh, communication. Michael will talk for about 40 minutes, then we'll have short responses of five or 10 minutes from our two respondents who got introduced very briefly. So Kuban Naidu is the deputy governor of the South African Reserve Bank and former head of the secretariat of the National Planning Commission. He's also the CEO of the Prudential Authority responsible for banking. And he describes himself as an activist and public servant committed to social justice. And I know personally that he's very interested in cities. Geshi Karuri Sabina has a very diverse background in urban planning and technology. She's worked in the private sector and government in research, and perhaps best known to us for the South African Cities Network. She's also an activist and passionate about cities and social justice. So without further ado, let me hand over to Michael, and please put your questions in the Q&A box and any comments you want to make in the chat function. But thanks very much, Michael, for getting up at such an early hour 
and uh, sharing your ideas and thoughts with us today. Well, I want to thank you, um, Ivan, and all the rest of you for <clears throat> the honor of being able to dialogue with all of you about this um, subject of the city in, uh, you know, in COVID times. Um, so um, the obvious thing to say, I think, is that anything that we, uh, anything that we say about um, the city today uh, in, in, or the post-COVID city is necessarily gonna be somewhat speculative, frankly. It's gonna be something like educated guesses, all right? And that's because <clears throat> we're, we've really just begun uh, to live through this phenomenon we don't know how it's all gonna how it's all gonna shake out over the longer run. I think the second thing to say is so I'm gonna speak about this this paper that um, I did with two colleagues, Rich Florida from University of Toronto, and Andres Rodriguez Bothe, who is my colleague in London, but who was being of Spanish origin was locked down in Madrid, and so I think that's maybe a good starting point that <clears throat> we're writing this paper. Um, in the early days of the, of the lockdown, me in Los Angeles, Rich in Toronto, Andres in Madrid, subsequently revising it over the course of the year from those uh, geographical vantage points. And that um, means that we only know what we were able to observe and read from that vantage point, and that's not the whole world. Uh, there's a big world out there, and I think we probably have we might call a global north bias or orientation, uh, meaning the kinds of cities that we are, uh, we were living uh, the pandemic, the early days of the pandemic through. And so what I hope people won't take this uh, talk as is an attempt to generalize across areas that we might not know that well. Um, and hope, but hopefully there will be some common points that we can explore and draw into uh, other settings. So um, I'm hoping it's in that spirit of openness and comparison that we can, we can talk about it. So maybe one way to start is to think about, um, is this time different, right? So cities have had pandemics through history. Uh, the last one was about a century ago. It was a very big one. Uh, it did wreak havoc on cities. Um, there was in fact um, quite a big shutdown. I had no idea that of this, no one ever told this story until we had this pandemic that a century ago, many American cities were substantially shut down. And uh, when uh, people in San Francisco were requested to wear masks, there was a big anti-masking movement. That was a hundred years ago. Uh, of course, if we go back further in time, there were much worse pandemics like the plague in, in Europe, which at certain, at three times over, you know, wiped out between 20 and 30% of the population of Europe over and over again, over centuries. So uh, there was cholera maybe more recently, which, which generated a um, huge wave of, uh, of improvements in sanitation and engineering in, in cities, um, starting with the link between cholera and dirty water that was discovered in mid-19th mid century London. So 
you know, the perspective on it is that, uh, as uh, Ivan said about resilience, none of them ever permanently succeeded in denting the role of cities in society. Um, now, what's different this time, as we all know, is what we're doing right now, which is we're doing, uh, there's quite a lot of remote interaction in real time that was not possible in any previous pandemic. And that may be, to some extent, a game changer. Um, on the other hand, I'm kind of back and forth on this issue, there's a long line of forecasts that are failed that say, you know, with every, every improvement in transportation and communications that distance is dead. I keep on my office uh, wall the, um, the cover of The Economist magazine from the late 90s um, where one of their best journalists, Francis Cairncross, wrote sort of the, the, the definitive article on, you know, distance is dead. And then of course that was just before we had a big wave of urbanization and everyone coming back to cities. So that's perspective. We don't wanna use the past as a predictor, but we should, we should have perspective. Um, Rich and Andres and I tried to organize this uh, paper, which as I say, is a set of educated guesses to be honest about it. We don't have good data that are um, large enough in scale, solid enough uh, and long enough in time to know what the post-COVID city will be like in any definite way. But we tried to sort of organize the, the, the reflection around uh, four areas that we can at least keep our eyes on. And maybe we can say some things by using what we know about them from you know, kind of more solid concepts and, and data that we have. So that's social scarring, fear of crowded interactions, um, the geography, we might say, of shopping, employment, workplace, and residence uh, choices and commuting, uh, the built environment, which is um, what do we do with it, um, given that we're probably entering into a century of multiple pandemics and uh, environmental disruptions, and um, how all that might reflect out in the way we build cities, uh, the economy of, of real estate and design and street streetscapes. So what I want to do is run through these real briefly uh, as a way of stimulating questions. Um, I think on the social scarring topic, Will the fear of crowds and density last and will it change our behaviors? Uh, we don't know uh, yet. Uh, I myself go back and forth on this question, uh, depending on what day it is. We, of course, in the last year have had, um, it, at least in the cities that uh, Rich and Andres and I were uh, experiencing, there were rumors of you know, people massively moving away from city centers looking for suburban housing. Um, and this came across sort of in a contrast to something that we've been observing in recent years, which is uh, a certain return to the city. Uh, here in North America, which is you know, a country dominated by a suburban way of life and flight from the city for the last 70 or so years, really since the 1940s, 
suburbanization, uh, white flight, things like that have been major motors of, of a North American urbanization. But in recent years, there was a return to the city, notably of younger generations, mostly of rather skilled people, and a certain return to a taste for density. So what's gonna happen? Is that now all over that now that we've been all shocked and scared by uh, by density. Um, so our speculation is um, that for some populations, notably for older high income populations, it might accelerate their move away, which is a natural one anyway, that people of a certain social class with certain kinds of incomes, they, um, they observably do move away from the, cent uh, from the central city. Um, and that would reverse a, a small tendency that we observed in both North America and Europe of a certain older population staying in the city, seeking more urban amenities rather than suburban ones. Um, for families with children, meaning in the, that part of the life cycle, um, they were already in the last 20 years, at least in the US, they were moving away to the suburbs after their, after their fun youth in the city, uh, uh, later than previous generations. Uh, but this was already going on. Uh, we can't yet tell if young families will stay in the city or resume that tendency. The younger, the skilled, and the single, who are a pretty big part of the population that's returning to the city, uh, I think the big question there is what about their work? Will their work, will remote work cause them to um, not need to be in interaction rich situations? So I'll return to this. Uh, so one question we can ask is, another question we can ask is to change scale. Um, at least here in, well, both in, in, um, both in Europe and in North America, there's a, there's a distinctive pattern to uh, the shaping of the urban system these days at the interurban scale, which is to put it in sort of short, you know, sort of to summar summarize it, there's on the one hand, a set of superstar cities that have been draining off more and more of the skilled knowledge uh, economy type people. And then there's the rest of the urban system. In a big urban system like America, the good thing about it is it's really big. So you get, you get really good, um, as they say, sample sizes to study because we have almost 400 metropolitan areas. And what we see is a really distinctive pattern of uh, about 20 major metropolitan areas sort of taking off from the rest of the city system. And that's because the wage premium that people get for working in these cities is at its highest point since 1940. So if you take a person with a given kind of skill and let's say you put them in city A, which is a superstar city or city B, which is not, even with the same kind of skills, they're gonna earn a lot more money in a San Francisco, a New York, a Boston, a Washington, a Paris or a London than in another kind of city. And this is true even after considering the price of housing. 
one of the great myths that journalists regularly propagate is the idea that, oh, all these poor, skilled young people and how horrible it is and difficult it is for them to get housing. Of course, the young people are complaining because they feel it's expensive. But when you look at the numbers, it's a good deal for them to go to these big cities. It's one of the, it's one of the things I argue with my students about when they complain about how terrible big cities are for them. Um, now, so one question then is, is that gonna change? Is the incentive for those kind of people to go to superstars gonna change? Because now, as some journalists would, 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 you know, would argue, there will be remote telework that will enable them to have the benefits of a good career high wages without being in the big city. So there's an intra-urban and an inter-urban scale. That's kind of what I was sort of getting at is sorting within the metropolis and sorting between it. So that leads us, I think, to the main thing that's on a lot of our minds, which is this forced experiment in remote working and remote, call it commerce and shopping and all those kinds of activities. And I think a, a kind of a, a maybe a convenient way to think about this is three different kinds of work. Um, there's obviously the essential work that can't be done remotely, but that isn't high touch or highly public facing. So that's infrastructure, construction, um, maintenance. Um, I can't see why Zoom would change the life of someone who maintains our urban infrastructure. It's a, by necessity, it's a, it's a physical uh, type of, um, uh, it's a physical or, or engineering type of activity. Then there's the high touch public facing work. And we know that this has been one of the big dramas of the pandemic um, experience. We have healthcare workers, waiters, shop clerks, so on. Um, they can't be substituted for the most part by distance technologies. Um, and they've also been the hardest hit in some ways in both health, health ways and also economically. Um, the, the sense that Andres and Rich and I have is that people are gonna wanna go back to at least the, um, the, uh, the, the activities that generate a lot of those jobs, notably uh, in anything that's something like restaurants and bars and live entertainment. This is, was the experience in 1920 after the previous pandemic ended. Um, we can, I don't know exactly where you are in the shutdown open up situation, but um, here in, um, I had two of them last year, there was a, there was an opening up in France after an initial very hard lockdown and everybody went out back to the restaurants and then it shut down again. Here in California, we're in an opening up phase and um, it's mostly outdoors, but things are packed again because people are hungry for um, interaction and, um, and social contact. Uh, shopping maybe maybe more of a, a change and we'll come back to that. Um, Click and ship is obviously here to say, uh, but uh, we should also remark that, that retail was already changing before the pandemic. Um, the pandemic accelerated something that was starting and 
we were already referring to what, uh, what we call the retail apocalypse on urban streetscapes because of the advent of click and ship. Now, the third category, of course, knowledge work involving interaction, non-routineness, and performance like teaching and politics and all that, and of course, entertainment. That's the big open question. How much will this, uh, will this change? Um, so let's talk about this third uh, category, which is the big, is the object of a lot of speculation. And let's also remember that it's a big part of the economy and certainly it's a big value added uh, part of the economy and a growing part, but it's by no means the, major the majority of employment. Those first two categories that I spoke of are quantitatively where most jobs are located, even in superstar cities. And that's, that's a good thing to kind of keep one's, to keep some sense of proportion about because again, when one reads the journalists, you would get the impression that everybody can work on Zoom and that they're all gonna leave and sit in a cottage somewhere. So even if that were the case, there would still be a lot of high touch, uh, essential service, infrastructure and so on type of work that would be done in cities and wouldn't leave. Um, so the real question as we know is, and I don't have a perfect answer to this by any, by any means, we're all living through this experiment. Um, is the Zoom life an adequate substitute for face-to-face -face contact? You can see that I have a bias uh, in what I think about, or let's say I have a, I have a I have a sense of what the answer to this question is, which is that Zoom is an imperfect substitute. Um, with all the, you know, all the pleasure that we have of being here today, it's not the same as if we were in the same in in the same room. Uh, Zoom has a, um, it, it's a more limited form of communication than presence because it lacks spontaneity, it lacks the motivating effect of being together. It lacks the kind of complex parallel processing that happens in the same room and body language and all those kind of things. So Zoom, I think we're, uh, my guess is that we will, uh, a year or two from now, the new consensus will be that Zoom is a decent way to extend or, or prolong the life of established teams and networks, but it's not a great way to integrate new people, new cohorts, new generations in, into work to build teams and so on. And what we're doing now is getting through this, but um, as we get back to integrating um, young people, people starting their careers back into the workforce, that a lot of that will occur through face-to-face um, -face direct contact. And that probably so Zoom is a, is a partial substitute uh, for this kind of work. And probably what we're gonna have is some kind of hybrid model, right? Um, and the hybrid model will, is yet to be worked out, but it basically involves some kind of mix of co-presence with somewhat more distance. So there's gonna be some substitution of Zooming uh, from the five-day work week to a more variegated week involving presence and homework. That had already occurred in, you know, in my business of academia where we don't go to the office every day of the week um, in order to work on our own projects, 
maybe a day or two a week um, at home without being interrupted all the time. Um, there may be, of course, some very high status professionals who can sort of choose their own way of life, uh, but they're a pretty small percentage of the total. So a speculation or an educated guess is that we'll go to some kind of old pattern or that we're gonna blend home and office in a somewhat different pattern from previously. Now, there's an interesting set of paradoxes there, which people have already be begun to reveal in, um, in interviews, which is the pace of work. Um, meaning that right now, you know, basically uh, as compared to the previous life, in the previous life, if you, if one was at a meeting or, or uh, on a trip or um, you know, that, a business trip or something like that, you would say, well, I can't be at that meeting. Now it is expected that one is at all meetings, whether one is engaged with something else like on a business trip. So there's now uh, people are starting to uh, see surveys of the increased pace of work and that's likely to last. Zoom is likely to lead to more work, not less, because we will be asked to be both present um, uh, physically and present remotely and to have this, this sort of time uses blend. Um, so that, the question there is what about residential choice? How does that influence at an intra-regional scale the choices of where people live? Um, we don't know. Um, one possibility is some people will choose if they're gonna have a fairly high amount of remote work uh, and less commuting that they'll do more, more remote work. They'll want a spacious or, or more remote and cheaper um, uh, home. Um, but remember that working at home requires more space and uh, this is only affordable to some people. So it's very much income uh, and class dependent. And for this reason, we're seeing already that many people want to go back to the office because they don't have the ideal, they're not the elite that can work well from home. Uh, the other thing that, that urban living, even, um, even at this very difficult moment where we're not out of the pandemic, it has a lot of space dependent amenities that one doesn't get from um, uh, living remotely. Right now in the midst of the pandemic, cities are kind of forlorn, right? The kind of cool stuff that people like in cities isn't there anymore. And um, that is, uh, that of course makes cities seem rather unattractive. But one has to think about a, a world in which a lot of these amenities might open up and in which people might want uh, access to them again. So um, I've seen a couple of reportages in, in, in uh, newspapers where journalists have suggested that um, even in lockdown, that it's less boring to be in a city center than in some uh, remote area, because even though the cities are pretty forlorn right now, uh, given the uh, reduced mix of activities, that at least there's something to go around and look at. We don't know much about that. I actually have a couple of students who are starting to do surveys. It's gonna be really interesting to see how they survey their own cohort and what the, what the data are. Again, returning to the other scale, 
this big question about economic geography and urban uh, systems, what are the interregional effects going to be? How are firms going to sort their offices and activities between cities? Will that, will that change? So lots of speculation. And right now, the newspapers are full of the story of empty office buildings and collapsing urban rents. Um, it is hard to judge because this is one year and it's, a, it's an unusual year. Um, now, we should, also, we should also benchmark this. Um, rates of remote work potential, even before the pandemic, they varied greatly, right? So the, um, the, the, the proportion of knowledge workers who work uh, sitting in front of a screen is very high in the superstar cities like uh, San Francisco and London. If you take a, using an American example, a remote, uh, less urbanized area like the state of Mississippi and the US South, there are no towers to empty out in the first place. Right? So the benchmark, and even kind of anecdotally here in California, two major urban areas, San Francisco and Los Angeles, the proportion of people who can remote work in San Francisco is about 50%. The proportion of people who can remote work in Los Angeles is about 30% because San Francisco is a more knowledge-based economy uh, than LA is. LA is a more contact economy uh, both because it's um, a lower scale economy, but also because it's more like entertainment and music and, and that kind of performance oriented uh, at its highest end. So city economies aren't all the same. And even if we were to go to a permanent sort of higher degree of remoteness, it's gonna affect different cities differently depending on their, on their, starting, uh, um, their starting points. Uh, one other sign that we're picking up on also, though, is that even as some firms recalibrate what they're going to put in their offices and what they're going to allow uh, to occur remotely, and we have the stories now of firms giving up some office space, what we also see is a new set of tenants coming in, that there is some kind of uh, feedback effect where uh, new kinds of uh, firms and activities are moving into the city. So we don't know what the net is between the moving out and the moving in. Um, that leads to, of course, the other big question of how many knowledge workers are going to leave the big knowledge intensive cities. There are active recruitment programs that uh, non-knowledge-based cities, I gave the example of Tulsa, which is a city in the middle of the US, uh, I don't know if anyone knows, right smack in the middle in a state called Oklahoma, right between the coasts. Um, and they're you know, trying to attract uh, all of these knowledge workers, but um, our guess is that that won't go that far, um, that there will not be a massive relocation um, because um, as we come back into a fully functioning economy, the need for creativity, for building teams, for incorporating new generations of people will require uh, contact between people. Um, 
All right, what about all of these other things that go on in cities? Hard to say. Social scarring might last a while. Our guess is that uh, certain kinds of sectors that they will come back, but quite slowly, and that the new, we might say the new, um, the new sort of equilibrium uh, between remote and, um, and, 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 pres and presence will be different. That conventions, congresses, and business travel, they are expensive in terms of time. They're major parts of the economies of certain cities, but that uh, they're not gonna disappear. What they will be probably is they will be recalibrated to be more effective and as it were more worth the time and expense of the, of the travel. And that some of the more routine aspects of these will be peeled off and be able to, done, uh, to be carried out through a Zoom type uh, uh, technologies. Okay, a third dimension that we explore is the built environment. Um, frankly, you know, I'm not an engineer, I'm an economic geographer, but we, I think, can anticipate that there will be in, in the urban, um, urban planning, urban um, uh, management, um, urban econ uh, engineering field, that there will be uh, innovations as they were in uh, previous episodes, such as the cholera epidemic of the mid 19th century, which is that um, that is, we will start thinking more about how to secure and design the urban in, environment for these kinds of incidents. And I mean, the reason for this is that we've been shocked into uh, realizing what we have been warned about by health experts and climate change experts now for several years, which is this is the beginning. Um, given that you know climate change is occurring, so we're going to have climate incidents that are going to be more and more severe, starting in the 2030s. Unfortunately, we're already seeing the beginning signs of that. And secondly, uh, unless we do something about it, the the human um, the human sort of wild interface will generate more zoonotic uh, pandemics, that is the leap of uh, microorganisms from one ecological context to another. I'm not, this is kind of pessimistic or it's a little bit of a downer folks, but it's kind of being realistic. And we're gonna need to think about engineering and designing our cities for uh, those kinds of mid 21st century realities. And that will change construction costs. It'll change how we design buildings, how we design urban public spaces and how we design infrastructure. I think there's a huge new subject related uh, to that. Finally, turning to the built environment, sort of the street. Uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the retail apocalypse from online shopping and, and the office adjustment from time you know, uh, in the office, it's going to affect the demand for commercial real estate. Um, I don't know what it looks like on the street in South Africa, but I can tell you that um, I've been in the past year to uh, LA, Paris, and San Francisco, and um, just never seen anything like it in terms of the number 
the um, number of shops and stores that are closed and will not reopen. So we're going to see a lot of business failure and that will in, in an urbanistic way affect the commercial real estate market. And there will be some, I think, major adjustment. The, now the streets, so the streetscape landscape already needed rethinking prior to the pandemic, just because its economics were uh, uh, changing. I think adding to that streetscape um, is using the USA as an example, there's just a, a, a dramatic social crisis. Um, possibly, I don't know how unique it is to the USA. Um, the USA has become a country with an extremely high level of um, income inequality uh, compared to most of the rest of the global North. So it's more severe here, but we have, seen homelessness uh, reach uh, hitherto unknown proportions. And uh, so that's one, and that, that's a streetscape issue. Um, places like Los Angeles and New York are massively uh, occupied now by people who uh, do not have housing, right? And who are, you know, in it, it, it and who, this is a crisis that's been building for a long time but it's reached proportions that I think we have not seen in um, probably since the early 20th century. Um, I think the other thing that uh, we all learned in the pandemic is that it had a very distinctive geography, uh, really uh, hit certain neighborhoods more than others. And the neighborhoods have crowded more crowded housing, more multi-generational families, um, characterized by people who had, uh, were not able to work remotely because they're in essential occupations. Uh, those neighborhoods tend to have worse health systems and healthcare access. And they already had underlying long-term vulnerabilities due to social, economic, and racial injustice. And that I think is, um, uh, it's a very, these two things are very clear and they've dramatically changed the sense of what our cities are, are, are all about. Scholars and, and, and I think, and, and social activists were already pointing them out, but the pandemic has been a huge revealer. Um, now, in the midst of, of, of really what is quite a dramatic crisis, we might think of one sort of interesting opportunity side of it which is that in quite now for quite some time, we've deplored that superstar cities are becoming gentrified and that the gentrification has the, the it has a whole bunch of, of effects like commercial uh, uh, spaces in places like say New York or LA, we have this um, sort of gentrification of commercial spaces and residential spaces. In the commercial spaces, is sort of eliminate steadily eliminated the old ecologies of neighborhood in favor of sort of standardized global brands. Uh, subjectively, I can tell you that sometimes I feel, at least in, in, in America, you go from one city to another, and if you didn't know where you were, it would just be the same old stuff everywhere, the same old national or global brands. And you know, there that's kind of um, that's a debate that that um, different people feel differently about. But uh, the sort of funkier consumption, you know, moves to the edgy neighborhoods, but then they gain value, then they get taken over, 
Um, and um, uh, that's, that, that's become actually a, a subject of great debate about whether the cities will retain any character. Residential gentrification, frankly, it's exaggerated in the public discourse. There's less of it than one might think, but it's, um, but it's real in certain highly iconic urban neighborhoods. Um, at least in America, our cities are not massively gentrified. In fact, as uh, Bob Sampson, who's an urban sociologist, did, uh, he, he, he showed that actually the real problem in America is that poor neighborhoods remain poor. They don't get gentrified. Um, and that there's an incredible stability to our socioeconomic and racial segregation, at least in, in America. So one interesting thing is to think about whether the retail apocalypse might sort of stop that cycle of super gentrification, at least in, in commercial, uh, on the street, on the commercial streets, and um, maybe combined with um, the uh, counterforce, the demand for walkability, and uh, all of that sort of movement, which responds to the ecological crisis and so on, that maybe work. There's kind of an opportunity to think about um, cities. So that's kind of where I want to. I want to say a few words in conclusion about where I think the uh, the sort of the challenges are. So. One challenge is, can we actually repurpose our cities in response to these kinds of forces, meaning repurpose them in a, in a progressive way? Um, one, uh, one opportunity here is in the, actually in the urban design uh, field, but it also engages, of course, that behemoth of urban land markets and um, the commercial and residential real estate industries, but we might think about that some of the, the hit that cities have taken might open up um, possibilities for uh, repurposing um, our cities to be more of the kind of cities we want to live in. Um, I think the, the sort of in a, in a larger framework, we have, to, we have to put that in the context though of uh, urban public finance. Um, everything about the post-COVID city is uncertain. And um, the question, I think, at least in, depending on what kind of public finance system you have, but if you look, if you take uh, many countries, a lot of cities are at least substantially responsible for uh, their raising, uh, raising um, money through taxes and spending it. And we, want, we need to know if there will be a doom cycle of collapse of budgets for transit amenities and repurposing the city and making it more just, right? And whether this will lead to a cycle of abandonment, despair, and new fortress urbanis urbanism instead of the repurposing dynamics. And the reason I mention this is that, at least here in the US, that was the story of our cities from 1940 to 1980 they went into a doom cycle where you had the flight of the, uh, of the middle and upper classes, uh, uh, extreme intensification of, of racial and class segregation. And with those people, the money went away and the cities just went into a doom cycle. So that's a really big challenge, I think, in every country as cities try to rebuild. Uh, the housing risk, um, there's a major em emphasis everywhere on building housing. 
the debate started before the pandemic because of housing shortages, uh, the, the, um, the, the rising cost of housing everywhere. Um, here in America, there's a kind of new market-oriented uh, um, approach to housing where it is argued that we need to massively upzone, permit more density, get rid of a lower density, and that somehow that's going to solve all of our problems of housing access and make housing more socially just. Um, Andres and I have worked on this. I'm very, very skeptical about it. Um, I believe that we will need targeted affordable housing and that fully market solutions are unlikely uh, to, to generate a just outcome. So a mix of effects. Uh, Social scarring will rise, then it will decline. I think it's, we're not done with a social scarring. I think we're, in fact, I think we're gonna see kind of like a post-traumatic stress period where even after people get vaccinated, that there's gonna be a, a, a period where people aren't gonna quite know how to live in cities. Uh, but my guess is that it will decline gradually over time. I think we will see a large and permanent um, new urban public health and technology sector, it hopefully incorporated progressively into architecture and engineering, long lasting transformations of work and shopping, but not a wholesale ab abandonment of public life, preeminence of superstar cities, um, and some reinvention of urban spaces. Um, now, and sort of, let me finish it sort of with this kind of thought, which I think is the thing that's really on my mind, this is a very complex, multifaceted transformation going on at the intra-urban and the inter-urban scale. There's a huge amount of uncertainty. At these points of uncertainty, it's very hard to see how, um, how, how an urban system uh, will, will evolve. Um, but we need to look back in time and see that at other moments of crisis, that we can, um, we can miss it, to be blunt. Um, one of my professors, Sir Peter Hall, um, he wrote a classic book called Great Planning Disasters. And great planning disasters come when urbanists and policymakers, they don't think about the complex feedbacks. Uh, what they do is they try to impose a sort of technocratic vision on cities without understanding the feedbacks. And I think that's the challenge um, that we are uh, facing right now is we have to intervene. We need a vision, but we have to be aware of what, the, what, what we're getting into. And I think the, if I could sort of echo um, um, this, um, this thought here as a conclusion, which is um, I would be, I think the challenge here is to make sure that as we come out of the pan, post uh, out of the pandemic and start to build post-pandemic cities, that we have to avoid new forms of what I would call non-inclusive, elitist, um, fortress urbanism. We have to, as Joe Biden would say, build back better. But that means really that we have to put inclusivity, more just cities better housing for the people who really need it, not for all of the, and I'll be blunt, it's not the urban elites who need the housing, it's everybody else who suffered so terribly in the pandemic, um, and also really repurposing the urban environment to get over the social scarring and to make cities much more 
of what they are historically best at being, which are inclusive spaces of interaction uh, between all kinds of people. So thank you very much for hearing me out and sorry to go over so much material so, uh, so summarily. I'll really look forward to the debate. Uh, thanks very much indeed, Michael. That was a fascinating talk, uh, given us a huge amount of food for thought uh, and also made the strong case for better understanding of these complex dynamics. And because of all the uncertainties, we really need, this is such an important agenda for researchers as well as policymakers uh, to take much more seriously because the potential implications are so uh, profoundly negative if we're not, if we're not careful. Let me hand over to uh, our two discussants. Kuben, would you like to go first, please? Uh, sure. Uh, good evening, and uh, good evening, everyone, and thanks, Michael. Michael, it was an absolutely fascinating presentation, and it's really hard to add value to something that is both so uh, fascinating, in-depth, well-researched, uh, but there's also a lot of uncertainty, and it's really hard to make a call on how some of these things will pan out. Let me start off by saying that I fully agree with your broad conclusions, that cities are here to stay, that the economics of agglomeration are incredibly powerful, and I don't think that the economics of agglomeration will go into reverse. I think cities will continue to be um, epicenters, they will continue to be centers of innovation, of economic growth, uh, and economic development. Of course, cities will change, and they have changed for centuries, and they will continue to change some of these changes started long before COVID and have been accelerated by COVID, but some of these changes will, as, will be directly as a result of COVID. Um, the second point I want to make is that in most of the advanced economies sort of, you know, in general, and I'm generalizing, but cities have what would largely be called conical density pyramids, right? So in general, the density is highest in the middle uh, and they, play, they, they, they decline when you go outside. Uh, and in most of these cases, not all cases, but in most of these cases, good quality jobs are also largely in city centers or close to and around city centers. Um, in emerging markets, that's often not the case, right? You often, in fact, more often than not have inverted pyramids, density pyramids, with fairly high densities on the outskirts of the city, uh, relatively low densities inside, but all the good quality jobs are in the middle of the city. Uh, you, you, you've been to Cape Town, and Cape Town would be an extreme example in South Africa, where the highest densities are about 22 kilometers away from the city center, uh, but, but most jobs are in the middle of the city. Uh, and, and that is a fundamental difference. Uh, and so even though, you know, I'm a big fan of densification, densification must have a purpose, right? You, you want to move people closer to decent jobs. Uh, and that's a fundamental goal of social policy. Um, but, but I do think that the economics of that differs quite significantly from northern cities uh, because of that fundamental difference. Um, I'll come back to a particular consequence of that. So urban policy in most countries in the world is focused on three things, sort of moving people to, to moving more people to where jobs are, um, you know, in, in, in the form of housing, affordable housing, uh, densification, getting the poor to work closer to where uh, good jobs are, uh, mass transit systems or public transport systems to move people towards amenities and jobs, 
uh, and in some cases, incentives to get jobs or, or higher levels of income supporting activities in poor communities, right? And, and you know, different cities have prioritized these three things differently. Uh, I, I think in general, the priority has been, um, you know, moving people, um, but also in terms of trying to get more people located or living in better located areas. You touched on it, and if there's a single point that I want to spend the, the rest of the two or three minutes on is the impact on mass transit systems. I really worry that you're going to have, you know, you called it the doom cycle on mass transit systems. And there are three reasons for that. The first is the public scarring. So people don't want to take the underground or the metro because you might get infected. Now that may not last forever. Right? It may last for, for some time. But that in combination with, even if it's 10 or 20% of people who would work from home, even if it's periodically, creates major sustainability problems for, for mass transit systems. Right? Now, we all know that mass transit systems, are they're, they're two main ingredients of successful mass transit systems. You know, one is that lots of people must take it, so the middle class must take it, um, and you know, it 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 you you need you need lots of lots of people, lots of density. So density is an ingredient of good of a good mass transit system, but it's also an uh, it's also an outcome of 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 mass of of a good mass transit system. And I worry that if certain proportions, even if it's a relatively small proportion of people, stop taking these things the financial sustainability of mass transit systems may well go into decline. So for a year, the New York City can subsidize its met. For a year, the London Underground can subsidize it. But what happens if two years time, if ridership is only back up to 80 or 90%, um, and the, 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 the elites stop taking it, right? Um, so they jump back into their cars, or they decide to work from home one or two days a, a week you could get public support or, or political support for mass transit systems eroding. Uh, and that could really snuff out the lifeblood of, of what I think has been urban regeneration since the 80s. So you spoke about that doom cycle between the 40s and the 80s. Cities have largely re-emerged since then, but mass transit systems have been an extremely important part of the economics of that. And I worry about the economics of mass transit systems on a permanent basis. Hopefully we will not get permanent social scarring. And hopefully most people will go back to work and using these transit systems. But if even a relatively small proportion stop taking these systems on a permanent basis, I think we could get into serious financial trouble. Uh, we, the last thing we wanna see is the back to car. On the opportunity side, the walkability, bikeability pressure is, is a good one. It's an opportunity. We can make our cities more walkable and more bikeable. Uh, and I really think that there are opportunities for cities to take place, to take that. You, you spoke about the development of the trend that has been ongoing at the retail, the, the click and deliver kind of retail thing. I'm not a fan of malls. I, I do think that post-COVID cities may see a greater role for high streets as opposed to shopping malls. And I think that could potentially be positive combined with walkability and, and cyclability plans, bikeability plans, you could get a new equilibrium developing in cities where you don't necessarily have one center, but you have eight or 10 or 20 centers um, 
but, but little areas that are able to provide amenities that are dense enough to be able to be sustainable, sustainably provide amenities, but a significant amount of walking and, 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 and uh, high street shopping. Um, so, so those are my contributions. Uh, you know, I, I think they're fascinating. I do think the area where you might want to look at a little bit more is the financial sustainability of mass transit systems and its potential impact on long-term city development. But thanks, thanks, Michael. Just throw an additional point that you, may, you won't be aware of, that our mass transit system has had the added problem of vandalism during the lockdown, Michael. So a lot of our infrastructure has actually been destroyed. So the cost of rebuilding it now is, is phenomenal, particularly our commuter rail network in, in our major cities. So this is a really big burning issue for us. Geshe, over to you, please. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Ivan, and to the HSRC University of Free State. This is a great opportunity. Um, I must say it was almost irresistible because uh, I get to sit here with uh, my former employer, Kuben. Uh, and uh, Michael, you may not be aware, but uh, UCLA is my alma mater. So I get to be here with an eminent professor from <laughs> UCLA. So, so this is a great opportunity. Thank you. Um, so I must say that I started reading this paper at first with great interest and curiosity, then started getting very depressed. <laughs> uh, but on a, on a positive note, I think I ended up feeling quite provoked and activated in a very positive way. And so I'm excited to be able to give this, these comments, but it'll probably show up in the way I respond. Um, uh, the paper really does a number of very helpful things. So first of all, and as acknowledged by Michael, um, it, it's important that it's, uh, uh, you know, it's located in a different context in the north. So it tells us something about what's happening there. Uh, it's very useful, I think, for us to reflect on what might ring similar or different uh, in our context. Uh, and I think the point about context have been raised and Kuben has made some of those. So I, I think that's fantastic. Um, I also enjoy actually that the paper acknowledges that there is some diversity uh, uh, among even in the US, but then also looking internationally, the inconsistent evidence across different contexts. I, I think that's important because it begins to indicate where straight comparisons can be diff difficult, uh, but it also, it also forces us to interrogate, I think, um, that there are some systemic conditions that we don't necessarily know enough about yet, uh, either about the virus, but also about our societies and how societies might in fact look similar, but be very different and therefore react very differently to these things. So I, I found that to be very interesting uh, as the paper considered how different cities uh, and, and why these uh, responses might seem different. Um, the paper attempts to make some projections and predictions about the future. Uh, and, and I think this is very useful, uh, uh, keeping in mind, of course, that futuring is not usefully about uh, creating or even seeking comfort because we don't know at the end of the day. Um, but of course, uh, they should give us a sense of real, realism and discomfort uh, as we acknowledge these uncertainties that are bound. Uh, and I think give us this opportunity to act with great care and humility in the present, as UNESCO tells us, uh, Riel Miller there. Uh, and I think this paper, and I hope this paper provokes rather than answers questions. Uh, you know, otherwise we risk, as the paper indicates, finding ourselves in the same place and possibly reproducing things that we don't wish to. Uh, in that regard, I also found this uh, scaling uh, of, of issues from the micro to the macro very, very, interesting and useful, uh, especially I think in a time of pandemic, uh, our entanglement and our understanding that how we behave and what happens in the macro system are in fact connected in ways we didn't always appreciate. 
uh, I think has really been fantastic. And so I really like that the paper very specifically did this. Um, and then of course, uh, as Kuben acknowledges, uh, the paper's uh, recognition of how COVID in fact uh, is accelerating or amplifying a whole range of existing challenges. Um, there was an interesting uh, seminar a few weeks ago here in South Africa around uh, what's happening with real estate markets. And it was very clear from a number of the, you know, the, the trend graphs that one looks at, and I think the paper leads to similar in the US, that there's a series of disruptions that have been happening for quite some time. And this probably is a continuation, maybe acceleration of some of that, but that there are many existing questions that have been ongoing that have begged attention. Uh, Francois Vrouli from UCT here talks about, you know, we've got a real estate sector that's been broken since the 70s. So uh, probably again, uh, COVID an opportunity to really look at some of those things. So, so, so what was the challenge I had, and then maybe this was a provocation intended by the paper, is when the paper then says, okay, let's now wait and see how long this carries on. And that'll really tell us <laughs> what's going to happen. Uh, and I think for me, what that raises my big question is, you know, is this the game changing moment? Uh, and the answer from the paper appears to be maybe yes, maybe no. And that is very frustrating. Uh, because the paper does raise portions about how we might actually be wasting this opportunity and allowing some pre-existing conditions in a way to reproduce and exacerbate perhaps even some of what you call the structural, economic, and racial urban inequalities into the future. And this is of grave concern to me. Um, I, I was reading an article, uh, and in fact, I, I thought if I can find my way to the chat very quickly, I might post the quote so that I don't have to verbatim read it so people can play with that as well. Uh, as a science fiction writer, some of you might have seen this, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a lovely article in the New Yorker called The Coronavirus is Rewriting Our Imaginations. Uh, and what he talks about or introduces is this concept of a new structure of feeling. You know, this, this idea that, you know, he, he, he cites uh, Raymond Williams as talking about every historical period having had its own structure of feeling. And he refers to the, you know, the 60s or the Victorians or the Middle Ages or, you know, the Chinese dynasties. Uh, and it's a beautiful reference point where he begins to posit that, or ask the question actually, so what's, what's the structure of healing now, what's corona perhaps inviting? Uh, and, he, and he gives some examples, you know, he signals changes that we may not uh, always be conscious of, but are very important. You know, the idea that we are vulnerable and could actually run out of water or be wiped out by a virus. <laughs> you know, he thinks that's at the moment. Uh, he thinks the idea that, um, uncertainty becomes normalized and there's this very real possibility of death that wealth and privilege may not save you. Uh, uh, that's that's a, a, a new structure of feeling that we may not have had even just a year ago. Uh, he talks about this idea that the essential worker gets redefined. You know, so maybe our essential workers are not corporate and advertising executives, but are this category of people who you refer to, uh, who we need on a day-to-day -day basis and maybe we don't value what we need enough. Um, you know, is that a moment? Uh, and of course, that leads to questions about the possibility of a post-capitalist response to what I think about as a, as a post-COVID city. So he ends very similarly, actually, to I think the paper in signaling the possibility for reinvention. Uh, uh, however, uh, another author, unpublished, uh, a paper I was reading recently, <laughs> reminds us, and it's quite scary, that pandemics, and you acknowledge that pandemics have been in there, there in the past. You know, he speaks about the role of pandemics in the history of South Africa. Uh, or the author does, sorry, uh, and speaks about uh, how pandemics can also produce disproportionate outcomes, that at the heart of South Africa's current disproportions and inequalities, in fact, is an intertwined history of pandemic control, 
uh, and, uh, and, and labor control. And he refers specifically to the outbreaks of bubonic plague, of tuberculosis, and the Spanish flu in South Africa, and how those in fact contributed to uh, 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 what we experience now uh, uh, spatially, but also economically. And that's uh, in, in a way just signaling that this doesn't always go well, the, the, opportunity, the uh, idea that this is a transformative opportunity. So for me, the provocation comes to, you know, as we look at these four, area of four areas of change that the paper speaks to, you know, are they an opportunity actually, uh, not just to wait, but in fact, to actively reframe, to explore new transformative possibilities. So if there's social scarring, uh, and if it's not done yet, then that's maybe that's good. You know, should we use the scarring opportunity straight to surgery? <laughs> you know, uh, are there new configurations possible uh, about public space that can be used in more societally beneficial ways, different ways to think about the very notion of private space? You know, is this not the opportunity to ask the radical question? Um, you know, otherwise there's a risk. You know, structural inequality in the U.S. as in South Africa is very real. Uh, and we run the risk of this becoming about, you know, access to vaccines or solving discrete social ills. Uh, uh, but it's actually got to be more than that. It's got to be about access to equity and dignity. It's got to be about economic and social justice, not just about, you know, jabs and houses. Uh, uh, and there's a risk that we obsess about what, for very, very many people, might feel like rich people problems and vantages. Uh, uh, you know, when we start talking about where we watch movies or drink coffee, when many people are quite literally struggling to survive with or without a virus. So, so in a way, pushing say, that perhaps those old problems are still there. With a forced experiment, can we move to actually encouraging real experimentation to be asked about where do we need permanence in some of these changes and to make those decisions? Can we talk about uh, what new definitions or expressions of governance we need in the context of pandemics? Uh, when we talk about the risk proofing, do we need to just secure and transform built environments or do we need to really do something a lot more radical? Uh, and the same when we talk about the urban built form, uh, again, in the uh, real estate conversation, uh, Viruli was asking, you know, if we've had this broken system, then why are we only talking refurbs and retrofits? What's preventing us from doing much more than that? Um, uh, you know, could we imagine, you know, these typologies we speak about of really radical mixed use, mixed income, mixed forms of capital, isn't this the time to be having those uh, uh, conversations? So. If I think about all of this, and I'll stop just now, Ivan, uh, I know I'm at my time. Um, my question would be, so if I'm saying there's all this possibility, well, what have we been doing? And here I'm going to sound a bit skeptical, but I think that in fact, in terms of governance, what we've been doing is waiting, having lots of meetings. Uh, we've been backing the existing horses. So we've been talking about uh, relief and stimulus packages and using some pretty old uh, policy ideas. You know, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. We've been taking loans. Uh, uh, there was an interesting development in Kenya last year where there was a pop, for the first time, a popular rejection of a multi-billion dollar IMF loan because people said that they uh, did not want IMF money and they wanted rather accountability from government, not growing indebtedness of no particular consequence for the lives of the majority, <laughs> but you know, clearly good for those who were benefiting through malgovernance. So we've done that. Uh, we've continued actually to centralize and, and, and fail to corral popular movements uh, and actors to really pull together and do things differently. In South Africa, we're talking about new and smart cities again. Uh, uh, and I'm not sure, uh, and maybe then you hear where the provocation and an activation <laughs> you know, towards the end of the paper. Uh, so I'm not sure this should be about waiting to see how long and how far COVID goes. I think we've been disrupted. The order has been upset. 
if there's ever an opportunity to rethink the future of these cities, including cities like Los Angeles, and deal with these suburban structural problems, I think it is now. So this would be the time to be more and not less bold and creative. I don't think it's the time to wait. Uh, I think we should insist on that new structure of feeling and how that might empower us, not just with the responsibility, but also the permission uh, to do something differently. Uh, and so thank you for the paper because you kind of woke me up. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Geshe, for that powerful uh, input. Michael, just before we hand back to you, I want to just plant a couple of additional comments that emerged from the <clears throat> Q&A for you to think about. The first one was about the role of students in higher education, because students have been a big part of the return to the city in many countries. I don't know so much about the states, but young people, the growth of higher education, of course, face-to-face -face contact is inherent in that, but we've seen, at least in South Africa, that there's been no return uh, to face-to-face -face teaching. And, you know, a lot of talk about continuing this distance learning, this, this uh, technology remote uh, teaching model. So a few thoughts about the role of students and higher education in the resurgence of cities and the change in cities. The second one is about public finance. Um, we know in the States, the system is of a very fragmented municipal public finance system, which tends to amplify uh, differences between uh, parts of each city, the, the intra-urban uh, differentiation. And uh, in South Africa, we have single large metros, which <clears throat> discourage this kind of beggar with our neighbor type of activity and may, may dampen uh, suburbanization on its own, at least, that particular factor. So just in the States, is that, is that public finance factor going to reinforce uh, <clears throat> the, the negative scenario possibly? And that leads to the third and final comment about a lot of people have asking questions about the role of government. You didn't say much about government. Gishi has mentioned government. I know it's a deliberate uh, thing not to say, but first, the so first question is what sorts of changes are apparent? Um, maybe you could focus, we could focus on the States. We hear about the Biden stimulus, two trillion dollars in South African terms, 30 trillion rand, which is unbelievable. We couldn't afford anything remotely like that. Also that a fifth of this budget apparently is for states and localities uh, to use in a very flexible way. I've heard a very positive comment about that. Do you think this is a, a very positive uh, development? And following that, what, you know, what, what, summing up, what sort of more should government be doing I don't know, you don't want to be specific, but, but I'm just pushing you a little bit. Some of the people are saying, can you be a bit more specific? What should be government be doing in this crisis moment? So you've got a lot of comments there. Please, you've got about 15 minutes. Um, if there's enough time, we'll take another round of comments. But, but can you do something with those questions, please? All right, well, um, first of all, thank you for uh the super interesting reactions. I've been writing furiously because there are just so many um, interesting um, ideas. And, 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 and let me say that, I mean, I, I really agree with um, what, what you, you've all said. And, and let me sort of maybe tie it together with my theme about, with two themes. One is looking backward um, to the doom cycle, which I think, really traumatized, um, at least here in the States, um, I think we have never come to grips with how terrible and stupid that doom cycle was. 
we wandered into it. And you know, if you if you roll the film back to those days, you know, there were people going, oh, you know, the the new suburban way of life, the car, um, new technologies, urban futurism, and then of course, you know, the infrastructures and every, you know, the kind of optimism of the period. Um, at the same time, of course, I don't know how many people in South Africa know the particular history of the US, but it's also a period where you had, so on the one hand, you've got this expansion of cities and the urban system, but it ultimately led to the collapse of the central cities um, and, a, and really a doom cycle of physical, social, and economic despair. And of course, not coincidentally, exactly at the time that you're getting the major mass migration of blacks out of the South going to the cities where then they enter into the segregation and doom cycle just as it's happening. And at least in this country, the country has never fully gotten over the catastrophe, uh, social, economic, racial, spatial in all ways that was committed during that period. So I'm gonna be very strong. And that's what I think these major periods of change, right? As these huge shocks to society are, are very dangerous, but also they have, you know, as the Chinese say, the opportunity side. And so I think both of the commentators were getting at that. You know, sort of, we could start, I think, with, uh, you know, that, that simple issue, not simple, I mean, that, that kind of identifiable issue of something like tra public transit. The comment is exactly right. Uh, I actually have experience of what I would call one of the worst public transit systems in the world, which is LA, and one of the best, which is Paris. And um, you can contrast these cities. We've been putting hundreds of billions of dollars into transit here in LA and transit ridership's declining. Now, part of that is, I think that we haven't built it out, but part of it is what, the, what my colleagues who do research on this show is that people stop taking, taking social uh, public transit in part because the service isn't that great, even as you expand it, but in part because it's social avoidance. In a highly unequal society, what happens is that, that um, disadvantaged people, they use transit as a public space and then you get class avoidance and it's a doom cycle. Uh, you can contrast Paris where the car trips in central Paris are 45% lower than they were 15 years ago because of an aggressive investment in transit, bicycling, rendering the city more easy to get around. Now, of course, it's totally different geographical context. But I think the point is, and this goes to Ceci's comment, you know, it's vision, right? Are we gonna embrace this thing with some vision? And the danger right now is that the standard way we deal with think with urban issues is you have all these separate circuits. You have public finance, you have transit, you have housing, uh, commercial real estate, uh, architecture and engineering, and they're all gonna do their own thing. Uh, when you put that, I think, in the context, and maybe that's where, curiously, I think the US and South African situations overlap is, we are both very unequal societies, right? So inequality is the sort of um, 
it's the it's the sort of river that runs through all of these actions and reactions. And what I think is most dangerous right now is that we will abandon cities at the moment where we should be doubling down in, in being there uh, for cities and getting and avoiding the doom cycle, but of course coming out of it with cities that fulfill more of uh, their promise for the society. Uh, that means, um, you know, there's actually an argument here in LA about we've overspent on transit, nobody wants it anymore, let's just stop building out the metro system. Uh, I think it would be the opposite. I would say, go for it. That this is the time to build. Uh, at a time when, um, now in other areas with, um, for example, commercial real estate going through some kind of combination of of, of, of collapse or, or, um, or repurposing. The danger here is that basically old fashioned commercial real estate interests will come in, they'll buy the stuff up, they have deep pockets and they can wait forever. Uh, that would be a shame because what we need to do is take advantage of a crisis and say what we did before, that just, that just not, you know, that doesn't work. Um, so, um, and that I think really, uh, I really appreciated the, you know, the, the, the comment about this new structure of feeling uh, because it really ties together the sense of what we, uh, we, need, to, we need to embrace, but, but it, or you might even, we might call it vision. I don't mean in a sense of like a top-down technocratic vision, which is, we know the terrible history. That's, that's Peter Hall's great planning disaster stuff. But, but more um, uh, sort of saying that, you know, we, we can't give up on cities just because they've taken a hard hit because the cost of doing it in the long run, when you do it, and that's the 1940 to 1980 experience that we had in America and that they never had in Europe. That's the contrast. I think I get this as a Euro-American. Uh, we had, we never had the abandonment cycle in at least in continental Europe, more in Britain, but if you go to the continent, um, cities have all, always retained a certain amount of appeal. Uh, in, in, they had, you know, they've had bad times and you know, nothing is simple there either and we've made a lot of mistakes, but um, cities in the long run uh, are, are pretty good human habitats and they're gonna be more important human habitats with uh, climate change and a whole bunch of other challenges. So, uh, but what we've come, what we've done in this return to the city since 1980 is we've done it in a what I would say is a very unequal, non-inclusive way, uh, and and this is an opportunity for major correction of that, um, really big time correction. But it's going to require a concerted effort to not go into the doom cycle. And the transit example is the perfect one. If we abandon tra transit requires, you know, major multi-decadal investments and you can't give up on it even when it's not profitable, right? You have to get through that. So that's kind of the feeling tone to use the, the sense of like, what's the vision and what's the new structure of feeling. For me, that's the overarching theme is that actually we should bet on cities 
and uh, but we should use this as the moment where we go, um, let's come back better. So and I want to conclude that. So the, the question about Biden's um, um, 2 trillion or 30 trillion Rand uh, program, it's very interesting. People are looking into it right now. We're not exactly sure what's in it. Um, obviously the debate is about what does infrastructure mean? And we can, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. On the one side, you've got, of course, the standard old engineering lobby. Uh, you know, let's build, you know, let's build stuff. Um, there's no question that we need to build stuff. But you've got obviously people who are concerned about the climate transition. Um, we've also got a really interesting uh, group of people who are talking about what is actually what's inclusive and socially just infrastructure. In other words, infrastructure for who and where, which I think is a completely uh, new kind of almost revolutionary way uh, to talk about infrastructure. And we've also got people coming from the um, climate change ecology field who are saying things like, um, there's a lot of the old infrastructure from the 20th century that we should just let rot. Let those malls, we don't want them anymore. There are roads that cut through uh, neighborhoods that should have never been constructed. And they should, not all things should be restored or maintained or maybe in another way on the malls, if you're gonna save them, make them into community centers and public housing. Um, but there's an opportunity, not just to, uh, I think, um, build the old way, but to think really comprehensively about what this means. So to me, that's one of the, you know, I never thought I'd be like that interested in infrastructure, you know, like I'm not the engineering type and, I, you know, always found those that kind of stuff too technocratic. But right now, it's at that kind of intersection of the the vision thing. So I think this is in many ways quite an exciting time. But as we know, we're in the middle of, you know, some you know we sometimes can't see the light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. But um, but it, this is just exactly the time to mobilize. And I see here here in the states, that's the encouraging thing. Is I see a lot of people doing um, just that, that, that more people are involved in these questions uh, than they were before. So lovely, lovely. That's an inspiring, inspiring comment uh, about the need to engage, to discuss, to debate, to uh, argue and advocate uh, for the role of cities. Um, it's a very, very useful comment. Uh, we're, we're coming to, towards the end. Um, I wonder if you'd like to say anything about, uh, there is a question specifically about that in the Q&A, about how do we get greater compromises? How do we see elites uh, making concessions? How do we see uh, commercial property? I'm, I'm very, hear what you say about these people with deep pockets coming in and, and, and buying up uh, empty office towers and cheap real estate and sitting on it for, for five or ten years until the cycle turns again. I mean, that must be a massive danger. Is there a role for government in that respect to come up and use? I see that land is, uh, is, is, is um, there has been some debate about using the Biden stimulus to acquire land. 
for the purposes of regeneration and so on. Um, would you like to say a bit more about that, Michael? You, one comment to make here, I think, is that, um, you know, I always tell urban planning students, um, you all want to do progressive good things, you should go take a whole bunch of courses in finance, urban finance, um, and um, real estate finance, and in public finance, because this is a powerful, uh, complex, uh, sort of like dark, I won't say dark force, but it's a force around everything that we do in cities. And yes, the interests are very strong. So we need to know uh, how to change the incentives to build better cities. Um, and that's, that is kind of the problem is that uh, I think there's oftentimes a division between urbanists, urban planners, who are more in the public sector type thing, and you know, and uh, the uh, power of these uh, of these sectors. So we're going to have to work together. And yes, you you said it, I think, correctly, Ivan, that you know these these are big elite interests, and they range from you know. There's obviously the engineering sector, the organized uh, public, uh, commercial property sector, but also, you know, individual homes are a huge source of, of wealth for a lot of the those people who are fortunate enough to have it. Uh, it's extremely unequally distributed, which is a big problem, right? Uh, property wealth benefits the elites and the upper middle class. Uh, it increasingly discriminates against those who don't have the opportunity for that kind of personal and family wealth building. Uh, all of that has to be um, front and center in, in both uh, making it possible to rebuild the cities better, but also to make them more interesting and more inclusive, right? Um, I think, so that's where public finance can play a big role, but it's also to, I think we need a whole new regulatory approach to, uh, uh, real estate finance, to be blunt, um, we see, um, and, and I want to say this, you know, like I'm, I'm not one of those people who hates finance per se, but uh, the, uh, you know, we call it in this country, Wall Street in my backyard. We have not in my backyard, yes, in my backyard, and Wall Street in my backyard. And, you know, the, the this is a major asset class that interests um, very big, you know, very remote, uh, 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 anonymous ownership structures and the incentives aren't really well lined up in terms of getting what we want out of it in, in cities. And that's what any, you know, any city manager will tell you. So that's a major area of public policy uh, that's kind of behind the backs and people don't see how it works, right? They don't see how it works until they get stuff that they don't like. So uh, all of that is I think on the agenda. Excellent, indeed. So I'm going to wrap up now because we've passed our deadline. Uh, and just to really appreciate, Michael, the comments and in the chat have been really uh, positive. People have really enjoyed your, your talk, found it incredibly stimulating. Uh, the two speakers have been very stimulating and uh, provocative too, with very valuable comments. It's been a tremendous uh, engagement and given us an enormous amount of food for thought. 
um, which we would take away and apply in our, in our own fields. Um, so thanks again for getting up very early and giving your time to us. And we look forward to further engagements and indeed in due course to welcome you uh, to South Africa and uh, showing you the sites. So uh, thanks, much appreciated. We can't do a round of applause, but um, I don't know what the alternative is, but really grateful, Michael. Um, can't say that enough. Uh, thanks very much. I, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity. Wonderful. There will be a recording available for anybody who wants to uh, listen again. Uh, so thanks to all the participants in an excellent turnout. Um, and we'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.